today's Old Testament reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, beginning at verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands. Pay attention, you peoples from far away. The Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my cause is with the Lord, and my reward with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the survivors of Israel, I will give you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers. Kings shall see and stand up, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And our second reading today is from the Good News according to John chapter 1, beginning at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. So John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look! Here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. 
One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. So this past week, my wife Cheyenne and I were watching the series Fleischman is in Trouble on Disney+. Plus. We had a good joke last time when I showed, some video, showed something from a show that this is not just a, an Amazon ad in the, the middle of the service, but this is from the series Fleischman is in Trouble. And the trouble Fleischman in Trouble revolves around is a nasty divorce. Rachel and Toby Fleischman, played by Claire Danes and Jesse Eisenberg, respectively, after several years of constant disagreement and seething resentment, decide to call it quits. And they have two kids. They've got Hannah, who is turning 12, and Solly, who's 8. You don't need to follow all of this. but uh, And they're just getting constantly caught in the middle, as often happens in a divorce. And you'll never have guessed by their names, but the Fleischmans are Jewish. <laughs> And there's this poignant scene where Toby and his daughter Hannah are sitting in this cozy, book-filled study across from their older, learned-looking rabbi. Hannah's preparing for her bat mitzvah. A bat mitzvah is the right where Jewish girls are marked as, as uh, entering adulthood and becoming full-fledged members of the Jewish community. And the point at which they begin to be held accountable for their actions rather than their parents. And boys have a bar mitzvah for the same reason. And the preparations are going nice and smoothly. Hannah's doing a great job memorizing scripture, chanting parts of the Torah. It looks like she's ready and all seems to be well. That is until the rabbi gives this short little speech on what exactly he says that she's agreeing to in it. Hannah, the rabbi says, Hannah, you understand that you are engaging in a tradition that goes back thousands of years. You are accepting the yoke of responsibility for your family and your community and all the commandments of the Torah, and you're taking it upon yourself that is your turn to try and fix this world. The world is upside down right now, and we all need smart, thinking girls to help fix it, he says. It's your turn to try to fix this world. And you're going to carry this torch for all the Fleischmans and all of the Jewish people. Now, it's at this point that Hannah seems to 
do a complete 180. She nervously squirms in her seat and says, I think I'm not going to do this. And her father, shocked, asks her where this is all coming from. He takes her to the synagogue worship space to get a little privacy, to have a conversation, and to find out the sudden change of heart. And here's what she says. I don't want to have to fix anything. I don't want to have to fix anything. I haven't even broken anything. I'm only 11. So I don't want to have to fix anything. I haven't even broken anything. I'm only 11. It's interesting because Hannah does go through the usual adolescent list of why you wouldn't do your bat mitzvah. She's not sure if she believes in God. She doesn't see the point in these traditions. How have they ever helped? How she wants to create her own traditions. But the sticking point is the idea that it was her turn to take on responsibility for fixing the world. Your job's to fix the world, says the rabbi. Her response? No, thank you. Truth be told, I was kind of with her on this one. When the rabbi told her that her job was to take responsibility for fixing the world, I turned to Cheyenne and said, I'm out. I'm out. Can't do that. Why? Well, first, this isn't how every bat mitzvah goes. That's not what every rabbi would say, just to be clear. But it does represent this tendency that we all have, a tendency that can be absolutely soul-crushing, soul-destroying. It's soul-crushing in the sense of the expectations. That's a lot of pressure to put on a fragile, finite, failure-prone, human adult male like me let alone an 11-year-old girl. But it's all there in the way that we talk about it's the job of today's youth to fix the world. It's all about there when we speak of people, if you're not doing something about this or that political issue, you're part of the problem, political left or right, the urgency is the same. And it doesn't just apply to politics either. We can see it as our job to fix our spouses, Who's, who, which, one's, who's, which one's working, but, you know? How many of you have done it? Uh, <laughs> Deb, that's about it. We see it as the need to fix our families, fix our kids, fix society, which is tough considering the fact that we can't even seem to fix the problems in ourselves, can we? In the end, it's simply setting ourselves up for a fall because we don't really have the capacity in us to do such a thing. Thanks to the internet, we're constantly bombarded by the world's limitless needs, but we're limited human beings. And if we do do something and the world looks like it's still getting worse and not better, if for all of our hard work it's all coming to naught, then, well, the likely outcome is perpetual shame and anxiety. Either I didn't work hard enough or somebody else is in my way. And I know some of you kind of carry this feeling with you all the time. So no wonder in the show, Hannah took one look and said, hard pass. Because we all have this tendency to believe that we can, it's our job to fix the world. But because we are simply human, it's a tendency that can only be soul-crushing and biblically idolatrous 
in the end, a recipe for failure and disaster. Now, of course, the fact that we can't fix the world doesn't mean that the world doesn't need fixing. It very clearly does. Ukraine, overdose crisis, the environment, insert your issue here. Maybe if we can't fix the world, we should just try to find some kind of fulfillment where we can, abandon any attempt to do some kind of good in this world. Can't fix it, so we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. Maybe. Maybe. Or perhaps there is another better way. Perhaps there's another better way. When it comes to fixing the world, we could take our view, our cue instead, from today's scripture, from the first chapter in John's Gospel. Here we have our friend John the Baptist, again, no relation to the author of the Gospel of the same name. The thing about John the Baptist in John's Gospel is that he does everything he can to take the spotlight off of himself. I mean, I find it rather humorous that the story begins with this incredible cosmic poetry declaring that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. It talks about God's light coming into the world, and the light that enlightens all people, and the light that no darkness can overcome, and then it's got this weird little kind of couple sentences in the middle that says, oh yeah, and there was this guy named John, but he wasn't the light. He only came to witness to the light, to point out the light. Don't you dare confuse him with the light. This is all to make sure that nobody thinks that John is the Messiah. And John is always pointing away from himself too. John says stuff like, someone greater than I is coming, and I must decrease, and he must increase. John himself knows that he isn't the Messiah. John knows that it's not his job to fix the world. It's not John's job to fix the world, and he knows it. And if it's not John's job to fix the world, then whose is it? Well, again, John gets that craggly pointing finger out. The first word John speaks are all we need to know. We have this scene where John appears to be minding his own business, and then suddenly Jesus is, I just don't have no idea how this scene plays out at all. But Jesus is standing somewhere, or John is standing somewhere, and Jesus just walks up. John points at him. And says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We don't know who's around, who hears it. But he points, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here, Jesus of Nazareth, this guy is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you don't know much about the Bible or ancient Israelite culture, this may sound absolutely bizarre. And maybe it'll sound absolutely bizarre even after I explain it. Who knows? There are a few references in this text to what the Lamb of God is, but the main one is to the book of Exodus. It's to the story of Moses and Israel, God's people, rescued from slavery in Egypt. You might recall that plague after plague was sent against the Egyptian pharaoh, and he refused to let the Israelite slaves go until the last plague. And the last plague was the Passover. The Passover where the angel of death passed through Egypt, striking each firstborn Egyptian dead. 
And to avoid the same fate, the Israelites were, you can see on the image there, they were there, (laughs) on the image there. They were instructed to cover their doorposts with lamb's blood, which would cause the angel of death, the destroyer, to pass over their houses, leaving them unharmed. Which is the moment where Pharaoh finally relents and releases them into freedom. John is taking this same image, the Passover lamb, transforming it, and he's applying it to Jesus. John is saying that in much the same way the lamb's blood protected the Israelites from death and guaranteed their freedom from bondage in Egypt, that on the cross, Jesus has rescued humanity from the power of death. And in his rising, he has smashed the chains of sin that hold the world captive. And notice that it doesn't say sins. It doesn't say sins, as in our individual trespasses, our lies, our unkindness, our falling short. That's all within there. But he says sin with a capital S. Sin with a capital S. Sin being the source, the power the brokenness at the heart of human life, all in life that needs fixing, you could say. Everything in human life that needs fixing. In his death and resurrection, Jesus takes it all away. That's what John says. John is declaring that in Jesus, every sin has been forgiven. Every injustice will be corrected Every wrong will be righted. Everything that has fallen, everything that is broken, everything that is hurting in our world, the promise of the gospel is that on account of Jesus, everything that needs fixing will be fixed. Everything that needs fixing will be fixed. John's always pointing away from himself because he knows that it's not his job to fix the world, and it's not your job, and it's not my job either no because that job belongs to the god we meet in jesus christ salvation in the words of revelation salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb you know there's a phrase in aa there is a god and you're not him that's good news That's good news. I mean, bad news. I mean, I wish I were God. I act like God all the time. But I'm not God. When we come to the realization that the world's already got a Savior, and we're not Him, then we're freed from the impossible task of making the world turn out right. We're freed to turn instead in love to the little corner of the world that we occupy. We can feed people, clothe people. We can house people. We can raise children. We can love our spouses and our families. We can seek justice and advocate for the least, last, and lost without worrying if it's going to fix the world or not. Instead, we can follow John's example. And we can witness to the good news that in Jesus Christ, the fix is in. That the great divine repair job has begun 
and that in him there's a light that will one day banish all darkness for good. There is a God. He's not you. There is a God, and God is making all things new. Brothers and sisters, friends in Christ, your job is not to fix the world. Your job is to witness that great healing power at the heart of creation. Your job isn't to make sure that everything turns out right, but to give an account of the hope that is in you in everything that you do. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And by God's grace, love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing so, point with every fiber of your being to a Savior who, in the end, will get what he wants. A new heaven and a new earth. Everything broken, fixed. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The divine torch is already lit. May you lift it high. Amen.